I'd love if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. If you're here visiting this morning and you need a Bible, uh, please just raise your hands and uh, this, these lovely people who are serving this morning will be happy to provide a Bible for you. So just raise your hands there. Keep them up. There's one down front here, Erica, and brother there in the middle. Uh, keep them up there. We'll get a Bible to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to take that, put your name in it, uh, treasure it. We pray the way we treasure it uh, and read it, read it every day and uh, learn from it, profit by it. Uh, Chardonnay, I'm going to ask you to pass that Bible back to people behind you. That's just a needed Bible there. There we go. Are we good? Okay, maybe not. I thought I saw our hand. Good. Anybody else need a Bible? Excellent. All right. All right. All right. Well, again, let me welcome you if you're visiting with us this morning. My name is Pastor T. I'm one of the uh, three pastors here at ARC. And uh, let me just put you at ease. I don't normally have on a suit and tie. And seeing how we normally rock. So the people you see with like blue jeans on, that's us. All right. So you want to come back and be comfortable next week. Come on back uh, with your blue jeans and t-shirts on. Amen. All right. Well, let me offer a word of prayer and we'll hear from God's word. Father, we do thank you so much for Jesus, the living word. We thank you that he came from heaven to earth, not just to show us the way, as if we only had a good example, we could get there ourselves. But he came from heaven to earth to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, and also to live for us, to perfectly obey you where we had failed. And you raised him from the grave because you were satisfied with his sacrifice. And in his sacrifice, Lord, is our righteousness and our new and eternal life. And we thank you that he lives even now, interceding for us. So as we come to your word this morning, we pray, help us to understand it. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to believe, perhaps for the first time. Or help us to go forward in yet deeper faith that we might bring him yet greater glory. Lord, anoint your preaching and lift up Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Most children love fairy tales. Fairy tales combine this sense of wonder and adventure, oftentimes with a, a childhood-appropriate story of romance and love and courage. In one sense, fairy tales are, are basically the same. The knight must prove that he is worthy to win the hand of the princess. In that way, these stories are designed really to teach a person's worth or value, both the worth of the knight and the worth of the princess. See, the, the princess is too valuable to settle for any buster with a rusty shield and a broken down horse. Her heart must be won with extravagant devotion. She's looking for someone who knows her worth because she knows her worth. And the knight must also prove his worth as well, not just to the princess, but to himself. He must demonstrate through a heroic feat that he has unmatched 
character, unmatched courage, unrivaled valor and devotion. A dragon must be killed. A, a quest must be completed. Fairy tales teach us that the knight and the princess are both, quote, worth it. So ladies, don't stop being princesses who know your worth. Wait for a man who will kill a dragon for you. Brothers, don't stop being men willing to face the greatest dangers to prove your heart. Embrace challenges and level up. I feel my help coming. <laughs> One of the saddest things that happen to us as we grow up is we stop believing in fairy tales. I don't mean the fantasy part, the make-believe part. No, it's sad when we stop believing in the worthiness part. The valor, the courage, the modesty, the beauty, the esteem, the patience, the endurance. It's sad because when we lose that, we lose something really big, something much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than our lives. We lose this sense that there's something and someone out there worth it. Worth it all, worth our love, worth our effort, worth the risk, worth even life itself. See, life is haunted by this question. Who is worthy? Am I worthy? Are you worthy? How do we know? How can we show it? Is anything worth it? The good news is that there is one who is worthy, worth it all, and who has proven his worth by slaying the dragon. Our highest happiness, our happily ever after, comes when we find this one. And our text this morning is all centered on this one that we should be looking for. We're in Revelation chapter 5. If you know the book of Revelation, and you know most people don't read it. You know, they get scared of it because of all the images and the things that are going on in the book. But it's a really encouraging book. It's a wonderful book. It's necessary. That's why God put it in the Bible. John is a follower of Jesus, the beloved apostle. He's old now, and he's in exile. He's in prison on an island called Patmos because he preached the word of God, because he preached the gospel. And while on that island, he had a series of visions. That's what we have in Revelation, a series of visions given to John. And in Revelation chapter 5, he's got a vision of heaven and the worship of heaven. And in this vision, in verses 1 to 4, is the pressing question, who is worthy. That's what's asked. Who is worthy? Then in verses 5 to 14 comes the answer. There is only one who is worthy. Only one who is worthy. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty, mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down. And worship. Who is worthy? That's the question that's focused on in the first four verses there. See there in verse two? There's a strong angel who cries out, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Heaven's looking for its champion. The scene opens in verse 1 with this vision. John says, then I saw. Now, the book of Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature. The key feature of apocalyptic literature is that it's full of symbols and images and, and full of these devices to communicate very deep meaning. So John tells us in verse 1 that he saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and in it, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The right hand of him who sat on the throne refers to God's hand. The right hand was the place of power and honor and authority. And at this point in the vision, it's vacant. 
The throne, of course, symbolizes, too, authority and power and rule. Kings occupy thrones, not peasants. Here is God sitting in throne. In this scene of power and authority and majesty, it's the scroll that catches John's eye. The scroll was a long piece of paper that you would write on and, and roll up. Here, this scroll is unique now. Notice, it's written on both sides. That was not customary in the ancient world. It's unusual. People normally wrote on one side. So this scroll is filled with God's message. And notice it's sealed with seven seals. A a seal would have been a a wax stamp that would have been pressed upon the paper. And when it dried, would have have kept it rolled up and, and kept it sealed, kept its content sealed beneath that stamp. That stamp often would also have had a name or an insignia on it, which would have meant that the one who stamped it owned it. This is God's word stamped seven times with seven seals, perfectly rolled up, perfectly full, and and, and locked up. And the question is, who is worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to open its revelation? When I was a boy, and that wasn't that long ago, Deb already laughing. <laughs> when I was a boy, one of my favorite fairy tales was King Arthur. You've probably heard me mention him before. King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. I think I've seen every King Arthur movie ever made, and you, you know how the story goes, right? There's this sorcerer, Merlin. There's this sword, Excalibur, and the Lady of the Lake. And uh, the rightful king has been rebelled against, and Merlin takes the sword and drives it into this rock and casts a spell on it, and nobody can remove that sword. Only the rightful king can remove that sword. At the time that Merlin drives the sword into the rock, Arthur's a little boy, and he gets raised in secret because basically of this rebellion against his dad. And all the kings of the realm come through and all the knights of the realm come through to take their chance at trying to remove that sword and being the the king of England and, and none of them can. And one day, through a strange set of circumstances, Arthur is out there, and he gets a chance to to remove the sword, and the the people are laughing at him. He's not even a noble. He's not even a knight. He's a nobody. And Arthur goes up to the sword, and maybe not believing himself, and, and pulls the sword out of the rock. He was the only worthy one to do it, who could do it, and becomes the famous king of Camelot. Maybe that's before your time and you grew up on Avengers movies. It's like Thor's hammer. (laughs) Nobody can wield that hammer except Thor. Maybe Thanos, but that's messing up stuff. Just Thor. (laughs) Revelation 5 is not a fairy tale. It's not fantasy. It's not a comic book. Revelation 5 is reality. Revelation 5 is a glimpse into heaven and how heaven worships. And the question in heaven when John gets this scene is, who is worthy to open the scroll? And verses 3 and 4 give us John's assessment, no one. 
Look there at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Notice the repetition. In the beginning and the end, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth because no one was found worthy. God gives John a vision that makes it clear that absolutely no one in all of creation can come to his right hand, take from it that scroll as an equal, break its seals, unleash the judgments of the seals, and reveal the word written on the scroll. None was worthy. That brings John to tears, beloved. See what he says there? He began to weep loudly. John's in heaven ugly crying. I infer two things about John's loud weeping. Number one, if there's none available to do for us what God requires of us, we ought to cry. And number two, if we have the word of God rolled up, sealed, and can't look into it, that's a matter worth crying about too. Even if we're in heaven seeing God on his throne and angels surrounding him, but we cannot access God's word and we cannot find the one who's worthy, then we ought to be in a pool of tears because we're undone because we have no champion. We have no way of defeating the dragon. No way of being worthy. That's how precious God's word is and how precious such a champion it is. And up until this point, things are desperate because none, no creature, no one is found worthy. What does that mean? Say nowhere in heaven or on earth or under the earth is there anyone who can come and do what God requires to be done. It it means we then have no champion. We would have no savior. We would have no one to defeat our enemy, our dragon, Satan, that old serpent, and save the realm. For, For what must have seemed like an eternity, John stood there without hope of a savior. And like any person with good sense, he cried at the thought that there was no savior to rescue humanity. Maybe that's the grief the disciples felt after Jesus' crucifixion and before his resurrection. Maybe they thought we have cast all in with Jesus and he's been crucified and he's been buried. The one we thought would bring the kingdom immediately and we all know death is final. Maybe they were in a thick cloud of mourning, thinking there's no champion. Maybe they felt foolish. Consider what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul there meditating on the resurrection, and he hears that some people in that city called Corinth says there is no resurrection. He says, you know what? Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's assume that that's true just for a second. Let me tell you what the implications are. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. 
then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain too. We are misrepresenting God because he said, or, or, or because there is no resurrection, and we say that there was one. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins if there is no resurrection. Those who have fallen asleep have perished if there is no resurrection. And we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. We are fools for believing this if it did not happen. Beloved, if there's no one worthy, then all is lost. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not found anything or anyone that you think is worthy of your devotion, of your worship, of your life, of your obedience. Maybe you've been thinking about that in terms of a purpose in life and you've not found it. Maybe you've been thinking about that in terms of a romantic relationship and you've, you've not found it, the worthy one. Maybe you've not found anything better to live for than your sins, which actually you don't even like, particularly when you consider what they're doing to you. But you're left with this question. Who is worthy of my life and my devotion? The answer comes to us in verses 5 to 14. When all looked lost and John was coming unglued with tears, then the answer to the question, who is worthy, begins to get unpacked beginning in verse 5. Notice now, verse 5 gives us good news. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's good news now. The elder says, stop crying. Don't blind yourself with tears. Look, behold, there is one and only one who is worthy. We, we are not meant to be bitter because there's only one way. We're meant to be glad that there is one way. That's what the text is demonstrating. John is crying up to verse 4 because it looks like it's an, an impossibility. But now there steps on the scene one and only one who is worthy to do what God requires to be done. John introduces to him, us to him by his two titles here. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's not Holly Selassie. <laughs> That's not any kind of cult on this planet. That is Jesus. The one who descends from the tribe of Judah. And that term lion there is capturing his majesty, his, his kingship. And, and so is the next title too, the, the root of David. But that's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? The Messiah is, is said to be the one who comes from David, who sits on David's throne, who will rule forever in David's kingdom. He is an offspring of David, but that's not what the word root means. Doesn't mean offspring. He is as the root, the beginning. He is the source. He is the one from whom David gets his life. He is both a descendant of David and the one who comes before David. You say, how that work? Glad you asked. It's the question they asked Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now every little Jewish boy and girl from the time they were in preschool would have known the answer to that. They said to him, The son of David, a title that 
represents his Messiahship, the fact that he's to be the anointed one to save. Verse 43, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at where my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet. Jesus had him in a pickle. Because if he's David's son, how does David call him Lord? And he says this, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus knows how to do a clap back, just shut it down, right? <laughs> the Lord Jesus is both David's son and David's God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also the root of David. Now, notice this. This king is a conquering king, but he doesn't conquer the way earthly kings do. You see there in verse 5, he has conquered. He has conquered. That's what's made him worthy now to open a scroll and its seals. And it's Colossians 2.15 that describes his conquering for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is, he, he took the weapons from his spiritual enemies in the heavenly places and he put those enemies to an open shame. Colossians 2.15 says, by triumphing or conquering over them in the cross. This king wins by dying. There's never been another king like him. And by his death, he vanquishes all of his enemies. Satan and his angels, sin and death, anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bows before the weapon of the cross. He has conquered. And that's why he's worthy. And the rest of this chapter is really a meditation on his worthiness based upon his cross. We want to get five reasons here why this, this Jesus, this lamb, is worthy. Reason number one, he's worthy because he's the only lamb that stands perfect before God. See there in verse 6? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Two things to notice about this verse. First, the worthy one, notice where he stands. He stands in the middle of all the activity in heaven. He's between God on one hand, the the living creatures on the other hand, and the 24 elders on the other hand. They are huddled around him, and Jesus is the choir director. Jesus is at the center. The lamb is getting all the attention of heaven. But now notice the second thing. Notice that John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I don't know about you, but I don't think a lamb that's been killed ordinarily stands. This lamb tasted death for everyone, but death couldn't hold him. He laid down his life, but three days later, he stood up. He pushed back the stone. He took off the grave clothes, and the one who had been slain lives. And he stands in the center of heaven as the object of worship in glory. He's the only perfect lamb. Why do I say that? 
Notice how his perfection is symbolized in verse 6, the seven horns and the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, this is highly symbolic literature. So these are symbols, and seven is a, a number symbolic of perfection. A horn throughout Scripture is used to symbolize power. So now he is perfected in power. And here now, John interprets the seven eyes for us. He is, he is full of the Spirit. This lamb is the perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot, who gives his life as an eternal sacrifice for all who would believe on Christ. And this is why we're not offering sacrifices in temples no more. This is why we're not killing bulls and goats and sprinkling blood on, on symbolic furniture in the temple. Because the true lamb, the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb, who takes away all the sins of the world, has been killed, but is also risen. And he has told us it's finished. There's no sacrifice after his. You can clap if you want to. You can clap all by yourself if you want to. I mean, no he is the worthy one. Standing in the center of all that's happening in heaven. And the question is, is he at the center of all that's happening in your life? Is he worthy as the perfect lamb? Number two, notice now, only the lamb, this is why he's worthy, only the lamb can rightfully take the scroll as God's equal. That's what we see in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's a simple sentence with simple action, but it is marvelously profound. John has already looked in heaven, he's already looked on earth, he's already looked under the earth, and no one could come close to God and take something out of God's hand held over the place of, 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 of authority or held over the place of, of recognition and honor. And in all the other visions of heaven, really, whenever God shows up or even the angels show up, humanity falls down scared to death. Nobody walking up to God taking something out of God's hands unless he's equal to God, unless he is God. And without any sense of hesitation or embarrassment, the lamb who was slain walks over to the place of honor, takes the scroll out of God's hands because he's worthy. In anybody else's hands, the, their arms would have fallen off. The holiness and the glory of, glory of that place would have incinerated them. But not the lamb. And why is he able to do this? Number three, he's the only one worthy uh, because he was slain to rescue us and make us a kingdom of priests. Look at verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. Yeah, heaven ain't done with songwriting. They sang a new song, sir, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now we get what is the clearest statement of the Lamb's worthiness so far. He's worthy because he was slain or killed. Now notice the verb is in the past tense. You were slain. And for three days, he lay in a grave. But now he's raised. 
standing alive there like his death is past tense forever. And it's through his death that he conquered, through his death on the cross, the, the Lamb of God shed his blood. And by the shedding of his blood, notice here now, he ransomed or rescued, or we often say as Christians, he saved. He saved for himself a people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and, and every nation. That means when it's all said and done, when history will have come to an end in heaven, will be a people from every conceivable ethnic, linguistic, social, family, national background. It'll be a room that looks like this only multiplied a thousand times. God wanted for himself a heavenly family, made up of people from every earthly family. And he makes that family through the blood of his son. Beloved, racists, if they go to heaven, are going to have a hard time there. Sexists, if they go to heaven, are going to have a hard time there. Ethnic nationalists, if they make it to heaven, they're going to have a hard time being in heaven. Linguistic bigots, if they make it to heaven, are going to have a hard time in heaven. Notice the blood of the lamb creates one kingdom, one people. One priesthood. His blood does not create a kingdom over there for those people and a kingdom over there for them people and a kingdom back there for some other people. That ain't how it works. The division of fallen humanity will be perfectly healed. And together, we who believe in the Lamb will be priests who serve him with a renewed vigor. That's why he's worthy. By his sacrifice, he makes us one and one with himself. And by his sacrifice, he conquers sin and death, Satan and hell, to make us a holy priesthood. But there's a fourth reason. He's worthy because he's the only lamb who was slain to receive all praise. What is it in verses 11 and 12? Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You've probably figured this out already, but... Revelation 5 really resembles the, the choir room, Amos. The lamb stands in the middle of the throne and the elders and the living creatures. The lamb is directing the choir, but, but now in verse 11, standing around them all are so many angels you cannot number them. Myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. This is the heavenly choir and the angels sing. Actually, they shout with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You've probably figured this out already too, but the death and resurrection of Jesus, the lamb of God, will be the main feature of worship in heaven. 
We never get past the resurrection. We never get past Easter. We never get past Good Friday. We never get past the fact that Christ was killed for us and took our place on the cross. That's going to be the central feature of worship for angels and the central feature of worship for all the redeemed of all the earth. That's going to be the central hallelujah chorus forever in God's presence. That his son was slain and raised again from the grave. If that's the defining event in heaven, oughtn't that be the defining event of our lives? If that's what heaven is focused on, the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of the Son of God, ought that not be the thing that we are focused on with our lives? If all of heaven is organized around the cross, shouldn't all of our life be organized around the cross? If, if Jesus is central and lifted up and praised by angels and praised by the redeemed, even in the presence of his Father, shouldn't Jesus be high and lifted up in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our decisions, in the way that we live? Again, y'all ain't got to clap. I brought my amen with me. And doesn't that beg a question if we're not Christians? If we're not Christians, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for your sins is not the central thing in your life, it means you're not counting it worthy. Not the way God counts it worthy. And it means that you have something else in that place that you are considering worthy, whether you have used those words or it's just by your behavior. The Bible calls that idolatry. The Bible says that's to worship a false god. And the Bible says that anyone who is this life worshiping a false god will meet the true God not in praise, but in terror and fear because he will be your judge. Beloved, the most central thing for you to do, the most important thing for you to do, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, if you're thinking about the claims of Christianity, who Jesus was, what he did, the most critical thing for you to do is to come to grips with this fact that the only way for you to please God in this life and the life to come is if you consider his son worthy of everything, That's right. of your life, of your faith, of your obedience, everything. And having put your confidence in Jesus as the lamb who was slain for your sins personally, and having put your confidence in Jesus as the one who was raised from the grave three days later, you go on to follow Jesus in faith. And the promise of God is this. You will be in this scene in Revelation 5, praising God, being accepted by God, rejoicing in the love and the joy of God in this kingdom forevermore. The alternative is too horrible to describe with words. You don't want that. You want what God offers you in Jesus, his son. And you can have it 
not by some extra super religious works, but by simply confessing that you are a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, putting your faith in him as your Lord and following him in that faith and obedience to his word. Then all of the heavenly kingdom and Christ is yours. Trust him. Believe in him. He was slain for you, but not just for you, not just for me. He was slain, notice, for his own honor. He was slain to receive all praise. That's how I'm summarizing that, that sentence there. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, that Jesus here in this scene is the conjunction of, div of divine excellencies. That old English stuff. He's the combination of everything great. He combines in himself every virtue, every excellence. He is worthy of every praise. Is it wealth? Give it to him. Is it honor? Give it to him. Is it might? Give it to him. Is it praise? Give it to him. Is it hallelujah? Give it to him. He is worthy of everything that we would give to him. He has earned it by his blood and he is receiving it in heaven. He has done this not just that the beady might be saved, not just that Deb might be saved, not just that Charnay might be saved, not just that Miles might be saved. He has done this not just so that the nations might be saved. He has done this so that his name might be praised. And that's an important distinction. Because if we reduce his cross and his resurrection to just what he does for us, that's why we're tempted to make God into a bellhop. And that's why we're tempted to think that our happiness is the greatest agenda in the world. Now, that's something bigger than just our redemption. There is the praise and the glory of the Son of God. That's what's central in the world. That's what's central in heaven. And guess what, beloved? Even if life don't go the way we want it to go, if we have this Jesus, life is going exactly the way it ought to go because he is going to be praised forever. He's worthy because he was slain to receive all praise. Notice. 24 elders fall down and praise him. The angels are praising him. You know, the only thing in all of creation that refuses to praise the Son of God is a sinner in their sin. The very one that was made to reflect the image and likeness of God. That's what makes our sin so horrible, so terrible. The lamb is worthy because he's perfect. The lamb is worthy because he's God. The lamb is worthy because he was slain to ransom us. He's worthy because he's excellent. Fifth and finally, he is worthy because only the lamb causes the entire creation to worship. Notice there in verses 8 and 13. Verse 8, John says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, a, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you know that your prayers give a pleasant aroma to heaven? 
Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea now and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And you get the sense from this text that this is not a one-time event, beloved. This is what's going on in heaven all the time. This is what, you know, because there is no unrighteousness in heaven, there'll be no Redskins games. Uh-oh. <laughs> there definitely won't be no Cowboys, man. I mean, heaven is without a lot of things. It is without sin. It is without pain. It is without sickness. It is without death. It is without any form of wickedness or unrighteousness. But you know the one thing heaven is not without? It is never a time in heaven where it's without praise. Over and over and over again, the elders cast down their crowns. The kings cast down their crowns. The angels never tire of shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels never stop shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain to redeem, to receive honor and glory and power and might. And all the saints in this heavenly throng never tire of singing, you were slain to redeem us from every people, tribe and nation and language. Ain't no commercials in this praise series. Ain't no switching channels. Ain't no signal interruptions, no emergency broadcast systems. All praise all the time because he's all worthy. A few years back, Third Day released a song, I Can Only Imagine. I love that song. Not that sister's remake. She kind of butchered it. That's free. That's free. That's, that's shady, but it's free. I love, I love that song because it's, it's like they were meditating deeply on Revelation 5. And the chorus of that song asks the question, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I think the answer to those questions in Revelation 5 is we will fall down, and we will be able to speak the hallelujahs. Together with everything in creation, imagine that. Every creature in heaven, angels and redeemed saints, and every creature on earth, the trees will clap their hands and the birds will sing their songs. And every creature in the sea, the dolphins will communicate to the glory of God. And every creature under the earth, or even those who are chained in darkness, the Bible says, will bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then there'll be your voice if you're Christ. Then there will be added your baritone or your soprano, your loud shouts of acclamation. Sometimes standing, sometimes on your knees, sometimes bowed down before the glory of God. 
declaring in one voice, all of creation, imagine it, worthy is the one who sits on the throne. Worthy is the Lamb forever and ever and ever. It's why we celebrate the resurrection. It's because he's worthy. Will you worship Jesus? Will you declare that he is worthy because he died for you? Will you put your trust in his sacrifice for your sins? Will you confess your sins and call upon him to ransom you, to rescue you from the judgment that's coming on the earth? Will you admit that you're not worthy, but that he is? Will you worship Jesus? Heaven has a champion. You don't need a fairy tale. You simply need to put your faith in the one who proved that he is worthy by dying for you. He's also risen for you. And he always lives to intercede for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he'll be right there in the middle when you get to glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we wish that we could praise you and praise Jesus in a manner that truly and accurately and perfectly matched his worthiness. For in our worship, we declare he is worth it all. And in our worship, we declare that he is at the center of our lives. He's the center of our joy. And we acknowledge that all this good and perfect comes from him. And we long for that day when our faith shall be made sight. And we shall see him as he is and we shall praise him for 10,000 years and only have begun. Father, we do declare that if we had 10,000 tongues and 10,000 years, it would not be enough to extol him for his greatness. So receive our feeble praise, washed by the blood, empowered by the Spirit, and exalt your Son in our lives, we pray. Give someone faith for the first time, even now, and build others in the faith for another day's journey. We ask this, Father, for your glory and for the glory of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.